0: Thessalonians chapter 4. For those of you that have been with us and those of you that have not, I want to remind you um, that one of the key themes of 1 Thessalonians is living in the light of Christ's return. He's coming back. And since he's coming back, uh, we need to be about his business. Uh, I love this because at the beginning of the book of Acts, when Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives, he went up into the clouds. And as the disciples are standing there and just gawking at him, you don't see a whole lot of people float away and essentially go beyond the clouds and not come back. So as they're sitting there looking, waiting for who knows what, just kind of befuddled, two angels show up behind them and they say, hey, why are you guys looking up in the clouds? Don't you know he's going to come back? Get busy. You know, get about the Lord's business. And I like that because it's the same message for us today. Many times we can focus on how God is sovereign and how he's good and how he saved us and forget that he's left us here for a purpose. He's left us here to be a testimony of his goodness and his character and to be basically billboards for his grace, you know. And so if we are to be, if we've been saved by his grace, we're to continue living in that grace that saved us. The same grace that saves you and I is the same grace that also enables us to live lives that are pleasing to God the Father. And so that's the theme this morning, pleasing God the Father, walking in a way that pleases God the Father. So as we think about that, I want you to remember that chapter 1 is really about how the church was born. And he recounts the beginning of the Thessalonican church. And then in chapter 2, he talks about how the church there in Thessalonica was nurtured. Anything that is born has to be nurtured till it gets to a certain age and can take care of itself. And then he talks in chapter 3 about how the church was established. And something that's established is placed on a firm foundation. And so as he's talked about all of these theological truths and reminded them about their upbringing, as it were, he now talks about, he kind of transitions from talking about being born and nurtured and established to the time where we learn to walk. And if there's anything that you've ever ex- been excited about in your children's lives, one of the most exciting times is when they can start to walk. For us, I was excited that Lucy was walking uh, just because I, it was, she was my firstborn. I was excited about Judah learning to walk because he weighs 30 pounds. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm needing a back brace to carry my child. But the beauty of it is that when children learn how to walk, they begin to learn to make decisions, and they have to make decisions. and They have to make judgments. So as much as it is exciting, it's also scary because the child that can walk across the floor and go grab his own binky also can walk across the street and get hit by a car. So with that power comes responsibility. Well, God has given us the ability to walk, and he's given us the ability and the, to make decisions on where we walk and how we walk. And so the question becomes, if he's given me this ability, what does he want me to do with it? And so we need to be considering that. So as we get into chapter 4, I want to read Paul's prayer in chapter 3, verse 11 through 13. There, Paul writing, he says, uh, he kind of breaks out in prayer for this Thessalonican church. In verse 11, he says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Remember, Paul's wanting to go to them and he's wanting to impart to them something in order to make up for what is lacking in their faith. He, we got to recognize that even though we have faith in the Lord, there's also always something else that we're lacking that he wants to fill. And so Paul's praying that he could go and see them. But then in verse 12, he says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. He says, my prayer for you is that the Lord would make you to increase and abound. The idea would be that if you had a cup of water and you pour pour water into it, the amount of water increases. But the word abound means to overflow. Now, we don't fill up glasses to overflow, but children do, right? Right. They're like, I want more. I want to get as much as I possibly can. And then that little, it's, it's almost like it's a, a radius on the top. It just kind of sits there waiting to spill over. But the idea is that prayer, Paul is praying that they wouldn't just be filled up with the Lord, but that they would be overflowing with the Lord to the point where no one could get near us without being spilled on by the, by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is to fill believers, to enable us to walk a life that's pleasing to the Lord. But the Holy Spirit is also meant to bring conviction into the world. If you and I will live our lives satisfied in the Lord, filled with his presence, guess what's going to happen? We won't necessarily have to get up on a soapbox and say, you need to be saved. People will watch our lives and they'll be very aware of that fact. They'll see our lives will look so drastically different that they'll, they'll want what we want. They'll want what we have. They'll want the Lord to be their peace and their joy and their fulfillment, their maturity. And so what does it look like to be overflowing as he's praying here? That's what we're gonna look at today. Verse 13, he then says, "So that he says, may the Lord may make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. God wants to establish your heart. He wants to establish you. But it starts with the heart, it starts with what your desires are, what your attitude is. He wants to establish those things. There are many weeks that went by before I knew the Lord, and I still struggle with it, where I was just blown and tossed by the wind, emotionally, practically, spiritually, occupationally. I was just all over the map, and I had no surety in my life. But when Jesus comes in, he gives us direction, and he gives us surety. He gives us a firm foundation. We're no longer blown around. We're established on Christ and what he has done And so all of the temporary stuff seems to fade into the background. But notice he says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. He wants to establish our hearts to be blameless. Now, if you guys have a realistic picture of your own heart, you would know that this is an impossibility. I can't do anything and have a blameless heart without the Lord making that change and constantly cleansing my thoughts. You may be able to fake it and make other people think that you're blameless, but that only goes so far because your own heart will condemn you when it points out reality, right? And then he says, in holiness. And so we'll get to talk about that here in a minute, but in chapter 4 ver- verse 1, he says, finally then, brethren, We urge and we exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more. There's that word again, to abound more and more, to overflow again and again and again, not just once, but all the time. He says, We urge you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So he says, here's how you ought to walk as believers. And this is not a message to say, well, I can't believe people in this world don't walk this way. If you're still surprised that people in the world that don't know Jesus walk against the Lord and rebel and do all kinds of sinful things, then you have a wrong idea about sin. Sin can only be dealt with in the life of of the person who has been transformed and changed by the whole power of the Holy Spirit and has repented and started to follow Jesus. If you, don't, if you know somebody that doesn't follow Jesus, doesn't recognize him as Lord, they have no power to change. They have no power to become any better. They can't. They are still dead in their sins and trespasses. Dead people can't do anything except lay there and be dead. They're slaves to sin, just like we once were. But to the believer, he says, if you want, just as you receive from us, how you ought to walk and please God. This is for believers. So if you call yourself a Christian, if you've been saved by Jesus, you can't just say, hey, I got my ticket punched. Here I go. There is a responsibility, just like walking. There's a responsibility to make a decision whether or not to run across a busy street. And as believers, we have to be ready for the Lord's return. And we ought to know how to walk And to please God. He says in verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's going to talk about walking, and he starts out by talking about walking in holiness. He says, verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. How many times have you heard someone say, I wish I knew what God's will was for my life? Now, they're talking about like what job to take and if whether or not I should buy a car or if I should get married, and how many kids we should have, and you know, where do we need to live, and what does God want, to want for us? But sometimes I think because we're looking for those practical things, which I believe we should pray diligently about before we make those steps. He wants to direct our paths. He wants to have full lordship over our lives. But I think sometimes because we're so worried about those outside things, we don't seek first the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is to be of the utmost importance to believers. And so he says, this is the will of God. And there are three times in the New Testament where it says that. I'll let you dig for those on your own. If you want to know what God's will is for your life, this is the will of God. This is God's desire for each one of us. He says this, your sanctification. What is sanctification? That's a big word. I didn't learn that word in school. I don't know how many of you guys use that word daily in your conversations. Sorry, man, I'm sanctified. I'm I'm working towards sanctification. What does that mean? Well, sanctification is really— I had to write it down because I can't remember it. I'm just kidding. Sanctification is the process of being set apart for a particular use in a special purpose or work. So basically, it's a process used to get God's instruments ready for His work much like we prepare for dinner. There are some items in our drawer of utensils that we keep super clean. You know, a steak knife. You want that thing to be clean when you cut into your meat. You don't want to have a bunch of gunk on it. You know, your spoon for stirring everyone else's food when you're cooking it. Those things are all sanctified or set apart. But here's the deal. In the house I was growing up in, there was no sanctifying the uh, butter knife. The butter knife can be a butter knife, but it can also be a screwdriver (laughs) and a pry bar. Which, by the way, when you use that thing as a screwdriver, and then you try to take that super cold, why do people leave butter in the fridge? I mean, we don't want it to go bad, but then it's like super hard, and you're like tearing up your bread with it. That's a whole nother deal. But the thing's got a little bend at the end because it was used as a screwdriver. So you go to put the butter on and your whole, your bread's all jacked up and your butter's not spread evenly. And then mine had like the bend in the middle. So sometimes you go like this and the butter would just stay because the knife would clear it. It would go right over the top. It's like what, that thing was not set apart for the proper use. Or what we've got is scissors. You know, we've got scissors that are set apart for the use in the garage for whatever I'm going to do with them gardening, working on the car, whatever. You, you find uses, right? But they got food scissors. You guys ever tried food scissors? When you got a child and you don't want, because Judah doesn't chew, he just throws it down in there and he hopes it for the best. We cut it up to small pieces so that at least when he swallows it whole, it can go. And so you cut it up. But if I use those scissors out in the garage, they're filthy and my son end, ends up eating 90 weight, you know, it's all over as it's food. It's, it's not seasoned. It's like, you know, probably going to cause cancer in California or something, right? But the reality is we are, as believers, to be set apart, set apart from the world. We've been called out of this world to be no longer just about the world's business because when we are about the world's business, the things that we know are not making God happy, what happens is we are too dirty to be used by God. We end up causing more filthiness, and it goes on and on and on, than we do causing people to see the Lord. And the Bible says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You know, many times we're praying that God would open people's eyes to the reality of what God wants to do in their lives, and He's trying. But you know who's getting in the way? Us. How many times have you invited somebody to church Or told somebody about Jesus, hopefully a couple at least, and they don't want to hear it because they were burned by somebody at church. I don't want to go there. That's where the hypocrites are. Well, my first response is always, come join us because you're one too. But my second response is, you probably have been because I have been. I get it. So how do we do as much as depends upon us to avoid that? So what Paul writes to them as he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. You're set apart for the Lord's use. You already are. As believers in Christ, you are set apart for the Lord's use. But as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to continue to be set apart for God's use. You need to let him continue to cleanse your life and set it apart for his use. Because we walk through a dirty world, and so he has to wash us continually. We need to repent of our sins when we fall to that same temptation again. When we do that thing that we know we're not supposed to, repent. Ask the Lord for cleansing. And he is faithful. He will do it. He wants to do it. So as we see this, he gets very specific here. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he says that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we all forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this, is not rejecting man, but he's rejecting God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So I want to point out just a few things. Why should we live a holy life and abstain from sensual lust? Lust is to desire something more than we desire God. And in doing that, we do that thing and displease the Lord. So why should we want to be holy and set apart? Why should we want to abstain from the things that God's told us are harmful to us? Well, let me submit to you these things. Verse 1, number one reason, to please God. Pleasing God should be the number one aim in your life above all else. If pleasing God is your goal, then it will keep you from doing a lot of other things. There will be certain things you're like, Lord, am I supposed to do this or not? And you'll know at that moment, that's not pleasing to God. I don't even need to pray about it. It's obviously not the Lord's will. If the thing that you want to do is not pleasing to God, it's not His will, don't do it. And He keeps us from a lot of sorrows when that is the case. And then the second reason to want to abstain from lusts and to uh, live a holy life is verse 2 through 3, to obey God. Number one, to please God, but number two, to obey Him. And I say that because many times we get things messed up. In this case, he's talking about sexual immorality. And if you turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 1 through 12, there's an example of this. In verse uh, 1 of Mark chapter 10, it says, Jesus arose from there, came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. Multitudes gathered to him again, and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. So the Pharisees came and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? See, what they're trying to get him to do is to say something that will make people no longer listen to him. So he brings up a controversial topic. Sounds like a political debate, right? Bring up a controversial topic, and then you'll divide the masses. And so they asked him, what should we do? And and Jesus takes them back to the law, and he said to them, what did Moses tell you? You know, I'm not going to contradict what Moses taught you as he gave the commands of the Lord. And they said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Well, he permitted them, we find out, because of the hardness of their hearts. Because they he knew that man's hearts were sinful and that they would make mistakes and that they would disobey him. And so he says in verse 5, Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. In other words, it wasn't God's best. It was actually, in some ways, uh, kind of a concession because of their weakness. But from the beginning, he says, The creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So when they're no longer two, so then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So in verse 10, he says, in the house, his disciples also asked him again about the matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And what you find out from other gospel records is that what he's saying is, except for sexual immorality, when someone breaks the covenant by going outside of the marriage and committing sexual immorality. And so my point for bringing that up is, is that God has a perfect will. And one of the ways that he sanctifies us is by keeping the marriage, sanctifying us between our spouses, And if you're married, you know that being around someone all the time, they see your weaknesses and you see theirs. And because of that, there's rubbing off of the rough edges. Sometimes it's a little sandpaper and sometimes it's a big old chisel. Sometimes it's a chainsaw. It feels like one. But the reality is, is God uses us as married people to sanctify one another. But he says that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel. The vessel he's talking about is the vessel that we are. We have a treasure that's hidden in us like jars of clay, is what Paul writes in another letter. And so as we have that treasure within us, God wants us to possess ourselves as a vessel and keeps ourselves clean from sexual immorality. Now, Sexual immorality can be described as more than just sex outside of marriage. It can be pornography. It can be uh, lusting, like Jesus talks about in the, the gospel accounts, where we look upon a woman and, and lust for her, or uh, women can do that as well. But the idea is, is that we are no longer to walk according to our own passions. That's his point. We are to obey God. And I, I tell you what, here's what loses traction trying to teach my three-year-old how to obey, and she'll say, why? Why do I have to do this? Why do I have to do that? And if I say, because I said so, there's no really any gravity there. She doesn't, I mean, it's just like, oh, well, you say a lot of stuff, and sometimes you mess up. But if I teach her from a young age, it's not because I said so, it's because God said so, then it's up to her whether or not she decides to obey. You know, that, and obviously, there's authority that comes along with parenting because God has given each one of us authority to parent our children. And if they disobey us, they're really disobeying the Lord, and that's what we're trying to teach them. And so in the same way God is saying, uh, you should live a holy life and abstain from sin, sensual lusts of any type, whether it's sexual sin or, or any of the others, the reality is God is trying to show us that there are reasons to desire a holy life and abstain from sin, one of which is to please God, Verse 2 through 3 tells us to obey God, and we have to look at it like we are soldiers for the Lord. Soldiers don't question their, their commander. They don't. They either get in line or they get punished, and their punishment is no joke. God is our Lord. If we really call him Lord, many people want Jesus as Savior, but they don't want him as Lord, right? Uh, we, lots of people like Jesus to tick and punch their, their way to heaven, but nobody wants to call. And Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I've said? You call me Lord, but you don't do what I tell you. And, and in reality, he's not, if he's not Lord at, of all, he's not Lord at all. So we have to look at that. And, and God wants to challenge whether or not we actually are his. Verse 4 through 5, he's, uh, the reason that we want to abstain from sensual lusts, and, uh, and live a holy life is to glorify God. Did you know that we, when we practice things like marriage and we do it God's way, it actually brings glory to God. Look at Ephesians 5. You know, the song that we sang this morning, like a bride waiting for her groom will be a church that's ready for you. Getting ready, think about it. On a wedding day, there is a ritual that goes on as a woman, even in our culture, gets ready to walk down the aisle. I mean, there are hours Days of preparation many times, getting the hair did, getting the makeup done, getting the dress, preparing. But if we, as the church, will only get ready outwardly for our groom, guys, I know that's creepy for us sometimes, but we are the bride of Christ as the church. Assembled together, we are the bride. And if we, picture it this way, if a bride is getting ready for her wedding, she gets on a white dress, she does the makeup right, and she does her hair right, and she looks beautiful, but she goes out the night before the wedding and, and sleeps with another man. Is she really prepared for the wedding? No. Men would be furious, and they would go off on a tirade, and there'd probably be jail sentence, right? How do you think Jesus feels about us when we get ready outwardly, but we don't prepare our hearts and obey him from the inside? How do you think he feels about that? If a man who's getting ready to get married has a wife that goes out on him, how much do you, how do you think that he feels when we do that to him? I don't want that to be condemnation. I want that to drive you to go, oh, I never thought about it that way before. I do want to get right with him. I do want to obey him. I do want to do the simple things he's asked me to do to be ready for when he comes back. I don't want to be... Like that bride would be and go. Oh my gosh! I can't believe I did that. I want to be the one that when he I see Jesus coming, I go, "Woo! He's finally here. We can go home. I'm done. See you, J O B. You know, whatever. You know, it, I don't have to struggle with this weak body anymore. I don't have to st- to fight against sin. and I don't have to worry about what's going to happen to my daughter when she's out late at night later and gets her license and there's all types of stuff that goes on. I I, I can just go home, and God's going to set things right. How cool is that? It's amazing. I don't have to worry about people being persecuted and hurt and laughed at and, and all of these things. And so he says, walk in holiness. He's begging them. And number uh, four reason is verse six through eight, to escape God's judgment. I wrote down this, sin in the life of a believer is not the same as sin in the life of an unbeliever. Many times we go, well, God forgives sin, and I'm in Christ, and so I'm good. But I would submit to you that sin in the life of a believer is not the same as sin in the life of an unbeliever. It's actually worse. Because we claim to trust the Lord, and we continue in sin. And in Romans chapter 6, it says this. Romans 6, verse 1. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Paul writes a rhetorical question. He says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Baptism being a picture of death, being put down into the earth and then raised up by the power of God to the life in Christ just like Christ raised from the dead. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, the body of sin put to death on the cross with Jesus doing it in our place, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Slave promises life and enjoyment and fulfillment, and it delivers you death. It doesn't fulfill. It only kills, and it enslaves you. You can't control it. For he who has died has been freed from sin, and if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to please God, is the idea. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you either, for you are not under the law, but you are now under grace. It is by grace you have been saved, that not of your works, not in of itself, that anyone should boast But it's the gift of God. But the wages of sin are still death. And so he says, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. So verse 9, he says this, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So it seems that they had a lot of things right, but they still had some things wrong. These Thessalonican believers were born-again believers, and they were following God But it seems they had some problems with sexual immorality and i would submit to you that they were saved out of a culture completely filled with sexual immorality and i bet if you did a poll and really dug into people's internet browsers and looked on their smartphones and all this and that they may not be outwardly sinning sexually they may be faithful to their spouses physically But I would submit to you that many of them are still enslaved to the sin of sexual immorality through lust because they think that no one else knows. But in the sight of God, all things are open and naked. He knows about them. And so he calls us to holiness. So, but then he goes on to commend them. He says, but in contrast, concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. He says, but we urge you, brethren, even though you're doing good at it, we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. So I wrote down for you uh, a couple of definitions for love. Because we all, ha- we, we've heard the word love. We, you can say, I love a cheeseburger, and you can say, I love my wife, or my husband, or my children. But they all mean something else, at least I hope they do. You know, I like a cheeseburger, and I love eating cheeseburgers, but I don't love my wife the same way I love a cheeseburger. And if I do, there might be some issues going on, you know. Um, But the word love is defined in four different Greek words. Eros, which is physical love. Now, physical love, or where we get our word erotic from, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It can be used in the wrong way. Uh, but the love between a husband and a wife that's physical, that that word is eros. But he says uh, another word is storge, which is actually family love. Uh, This is love of parents for their children. And then there's the word philia, where we get our word Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. And that word is deep affection or It can be uh, like a really strong friendship. Some of you guys got some really close friends. It's not all of your friends. It's probably like your BFF, you know. Um, uh, Lucy uses that very widely. She goes, that's my best friend. How many best friends do you have? There's, you know. um, But the idea is that it's a, a deep affection friendship. And this can be a friendship or it can be marriage. I heard somebody the other day said that their wife was their best friend and this should be. Uh, my wife is my best friend. I mean, she gets me. Uh, sometimes she wishes she didn't, and sometimes there's things she doesn't get, but we're best friends. You know, we, we we don't always get along, but we're always together, you know. Um. So there's that kind of love. We all have the same father as believers, too, so we need to think about this as Jesus told us that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. There should be this kind of brotherly love between the brethren. It's different than family love, storge. But then there's another word called agape. And this is the love that God has shown towards us. And uh, it's not based on feelings. It's an act of the will. God loved us not because he felt affection for us. <laughs> he had no affection for us. He was, in some ways, he, he couldn't stand what we were doing with what he, we had, he had given us. But He loved us not based on feelings, but because he decided to. Love is an action. Love is a decision. Uh, This is God's love. Agape love treats others as God would treat them, regardless of feelings or personal preferences. Think about that. How many people do you love like that? That's how God loves us. And so a little factoid I found out while I was studying this, is I looked at these four different kinds of love two of them are listed in the New Testament, and two of them never show up. The two that show up are brotherly love and agape. The two that don't show up are eros and storge, which I find interesting because many people tend to worship family. You know, family and God, that's all you need. But here's the deal. Family can be taken from you. Family isn't it. Now, I think that this is not in the New Testament because no one had to tell people to love their families. Now they had to tell them to love their spouses and to not stress out their children, but no one has to tell you to love your family because there's like a built-in love for family. I've seen family. It's the idea of like, you can't punch my brother in the face. I can. I can punch my brother in the face, but you can't. Don't touch my family or I'll punch you in the face. You know, they can, do no, they can do anything to me, and I still love them, or I'll at least acknowledge them, um, but you can't. You know, the idea is, and so I think in the New Testament, uh, family love, though it's important, it is not the ultimate, and I see that in the example of Jesus. Jesus was teaching his disciples, and there was a whole group crowded around him, and his mom came, and some of his brothers, and they said, hey, Jesus, like, what's going on? You haven't even eaten lunch today. You got to be hungry. Why don't you come to the house and get some food? And so someone came to him with the message from his family and and said to him, hey, uh, your family's out. Your brothers and sisters are outside. Your mom's outside, your brother and your mother. They're outside and they're wondering, hey, do you want something to eat? We want to take care of you. They're worried about you. And Jesus looked around and he said, who are my mother? Who's my mother and who are my brothers? Of course, that would be very offensive, right? Especially in our culture but what did Jesus say? Jesus said, my mother and my brothers are those who do the will of God. Those who do the will of God. Those who seek to please the Father, those are my siblings. That's my mother. And so in some ways, I think uh, we put family above the church. And when I say the church, I mean the the believers throughout. And so we need to consider uh, what our um, affection is. But my point is, when we love— he says that we need to love as God has first loved us. And so think about it this way. Animals, because of their nature, instinctively do what's necessary to keep them alive and safe. What does a bird do with its wings? It flies because it has a bird's nature. A fish, when it's thrown into the water, doesn't go, oh, it can't breathe. He, he swims. He breathes with his gills because he has a fish nature. And we, because we have, as believers, been given the nature of God, the Holy Spirit, we love we love one another, and we love those who are outside. And so he says, verse 1 through 8, walk in holiness. Verse 9 through 10, walk in harmony. And verse 11 through 12, he says, walk in honesty. Verse 11, he says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. So he gives them keys. He gives them the will of God for their lives if they want to have a good testimony of the Lord towards those who are outside the faith. Here's what we need to do. (laughs) He doesn't say, get up on a stool and start preaching in the... the, (laughs) although men do do that, and the apostles did that. But he says, first of all, get your life in order. Get your life in order. Interact with others in honesty. He says, aspire to lead a quiet life. Now, most people that you guys know that have large aspirations to do anything, they don't lead a quiet life, do they? They're always busy. It seems contradictory to aspire to something for quietness, but he says aspire to live a quiet life. Uh, A quiet life is not so much the quietness of a life that's very simple, although that is part of it. It's a quietness of mind and heart a peaceful life that sees Jesus as sufficient for his or her daily needs. So not necessarily a simple life, because that doesn't always happen, but a life that is simply trusting in the Lord for daily needs. And then he says, mind your own business. How many of you guys have said that to people before? Many of you've said that to your children, you know, Lucy will come in and say, Judas doing this. And I'm like, you do that too. You You worry about yourself. You know, worry about what you're doing, and do it right, and he will follow your example, believe it or not. And Judah does that. He does what Lucy does. Many times, the things that she comes in and says, Judah's doing this, it's because he learned it from her. You know, and as believers, if we will do what we're supposed to do, many times other believers will follow suit because of our example, and there will be unity in that. He says, mind your own business. Don't be busybodies. Don't be worrying yourselves with other people's affairs. I don't mean affairs, but I mean the things that they're about. You know, pay attention to your life. Live right to please the Lord. Live right to bring Him glory. And as you do that, He will be pleased. Work with your hands. Notice He says there at the end of verse 12, He says, toward those who are outside, walk properly, that you may lack nothing. (laughs) If you don't work, he'll say this in 2 Thessalonians. If you don't work, you don't get to eat. He says, so work with your hands. Be diligent about what God's put in front of you, what he's gifted you to do. And if you'll do that, guess what? You won't have enough time to try to get involved in other people's lives and stir up strife and drama. I don't know about you guys, but, you know, you ever watch uh, soap operas? I used to get babysit by a lady that loved soap operas. And uh, I'd watch them with her because that was what was on TV. And it stressed me out because it was just like, number one, the, the dramatic music. You're like, I don't even know, that guy looks shifty because he's kind of, he's not, he's a bad actor. He's, his eyes are going back and forth. So he's shifty. And then they play the shifty music. And you're like, I bet he's cheating on that guy's wife, you know, or, or his wife with that guy, you know, and it gets bad. <laughs> it gets bad. It's mucky. You know, I, I can't be entertained by it because it just, it, it just, you know, anyway. My point is, he says, work with your hands. Do what God's given you to do. Don't despise the work of your hands. Don't see it as something that's not useful for the kingdom of God. If someone looks at your life and sees that you have a peace about you, and they see that you're faithful to do your job, and they see that you're not getting, getting nosy and, and backbiting and talking about other people all the time, You're already vastly different than the world we live in and the people around you. And people will want to know why you are the way you are. So when they ask you, don't say, well, I was raised in a good house because your family did that too, just like mine did. (laughs) When they ask you, say, Jesus. I want to please Jesus. That's simple. Our goal in all of these things, in living a pure life, in practicing brotherly love, and in minding our own business, and working with our hands, and not talking about other people. It's not so that we can look holy in the sight of people. It's so that we can walk properly toward those who don't know Jesus, so we can walk decently and becomingly. The way you live your life practically says something to those who are not Christians around you about the God that you serve. Do you know that? The way that you live your life practically tells people about the God you serve. Who is the God that you serve? And who do people around you see as the God you serve? So, this lifestyle will give you a a living testimony of his character and goodness. And it pleases him, it obeys him, it glorifies him, and it avoids the judgment of God. Here's the deal. I'm going to tell one more story and then I'll be done the life of David. You guys know King David? We always know him for slaying Goliath. David, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, he was not going to war like all the people around him. He stayed at home, and as he stayed at home, he was up on his balcony one night, and he looked over the city, and if you've ever been or seen pictures of Jerusalem, it's a big hill that goes up to the mount uh, where they have the temple mount, but below there there is the city of David, and the city of David is within Jerusalem. And as you look down the hill, if you're at the very top, you can see the whole city of David. You can see all the houses. So one night, there was a pretty lady out on the top of the building, and she was bathing in the cool of the evening. For whatever reason, whether it was through a window or on the top of the building, he could see her. And so let me tell you that when you look at a pretty woman and you see her, that's not sin. Uh, sometimes you can't avoid it. You go to the grocery store, uh, you're standing in the aisle, there's all the smut magazines. They're there. Uh, avoid being there at all costs. But when you can't, looking's not sin. It's the second look. It's when you look again and you kind of start to think about things. And, and the reality is, David made a mistake. But then he made another mistake. He sent for her, brought her to the house. Then he made another mistake. He slept with her. And he wasn't thinking about anybody but his own needs when he did this. But it affected the whole kingdom. Because here's what happened. He slept with her. She got pregnant. And then when she got pregnant, Uriah came in. Uriah would not go in to be with his wife because none of the other soldiers were. And so David tried to trick him into going into his wife so that it would look like it was his child. And then what happened was that Uriah was a man of integrity and wouldn't do so. Sorry. I forgot that was there. So then when he ultimately has Uriah killed, and then when he has Uriah killed to cover up the mess, he marries Bathsheba. Well, about a year later, after having never confessed his sin, he's found out because no one else knew But guess who did? God did. And God told the prophet Nathan. In chapter 12, Nathan shows up and he tells this big long story to David. It says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. She had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate his own food, drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. A traveler came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock. A traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one of the wayfaring men who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against this man. Remember, David used to be a shepherd. He knows what it's like. Somebody steals from your flock. He says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. He shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan says to David, you are that man. You have taken this man's wife I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Why have you despised the command? The command says, thou shalt not commit adultery. You've killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword, so he's also murdered. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Remember, David is a man of God. But even though he's a man of God, when he sins, there are consequences. But then he says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up an adversity against you from your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He's repenting. But notice this. Above all of these consequences within his family, here's the worst one. He says in verse 13 and 14, Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. That's good news. But then he says, however, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall die. And Nathan departed from the house. His sin had consequences on his own life, but our sins, just like David's, if we don't stop, if we don't repent, if we don't let him transform us by the renewing of our minds, our sins can bring shame to the name of our God. Our sin, like this, can cause people to blaspheme our good and faithful God. I don't know about you, but I don't want that. I don't want that for my life. I want God to be glorified. I want to obey him. Yes. I want to be blameless in his sight but I want him to be famous in the lives of those that don't know him yet. So let me ask you, are you living for these purposes? As we get ready to take communion, I want you guys to spend some time with the Lord. We're going to sing a song. You guys can take up, uh, come up, take the elements at your will. Um, I will say that I want you to consider these things because um, I don't want you to take the elements and, and not be right with the Lord. I don't want you to take it uh, half-heartedly. I want you to be right with the Lord, and I want you to pray. I want you to repent if need to be. I want you to get right, and I want you to live right. Not, being a Christian is not about doing all the right things because we know all the right things. Being a Christian is knowing what we're supposed to do and letting the Lord empower us to do those right things for His glory. So if you're not right, get right with him before you take it. If you're not a believer and you need to take that step of faith and, and profess him as your Lord, then uh, do that afterwards. And then afterwards, we'll take the cup and I'll lead you through that. So, Father, we thank you for this word from Paul that encourages believers uh, to live in the light of eternity, to obey the Lord, to do his will, and ultimately to be pleasing to you, Lord, but when we please you, our relationships are right with others. And when we please you, others come to know you. And so, Father, I pray that if this is the thing that's keeping us from sharing your goodness with the rest of those around you that are with, uh, around us who are without hope, then, Father, get us right. Help our nastiness to get out of the way. Lord, you've saved us. Uh, you've forgiven us. You've made us new. Help us to walk in that newness.